so those Easter reservations went up today, guys. I think it's going to be, uh, as our church continues to grow, it'll be challenging to, to get those seats. So I encourage you to get them as quickly as you can so we can uh, get, everybody, get everybody situated. Started a new series a couple weeks ago called The Life and Death of Jesus the King. We're looking at, as we head towards Easter and Good Friday, the first recorded of several recorded accounts of the life and death of Jesus. The first one that was written, the first one that we have access to. And while it's the first account, in another way, it's also the last account. It is the last account of the life of Jesus by, by Jesus' most famous disciple, Peter. In your Bible, if you flip towards the back of the New Testament, you'll see that Peter wrote a couple of letters, but they were written earlier. This is his final work, maybe a little bit of his manifesto. Why is it the final one? Because it's being written by Peter while he is in Rome where he's been put under arrest by the Roman Emperor Nero. He was the fifth Nero you may have heard of. He was the fifth emperor of Rome, the great-great-grandson of Caesar Augustus. He's known as Rome's most infamous ruler, the Caesar most notorious for, uh, most notorious for his cruelty, debauchery. Ascended to power in A.D. 54, aged just 16, in charge of the Roman Empire. He died at the age of 30. And for Nero, while his cruelty was not limited to Christians, they were, in the first century, a very easy target. For Nero, he would arrest the Christians, he would torture the Christians, and before executing them, uh, he would come up with, with pub lavishly public ways to do that. Some were crucified, some were thrown to wild animals, and others were burned alive as living torches. They would light the streets of Rome with the Christians. This record of the life and death of Jesus, it comes to us from Peter as he awaits his fate in Rome. Now, it, it, it's not known as the Gospel of Peter because while it is, 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 it is his account of the life of Jesus, it was recorded by, it was written down by, by Peter's traveling companion, John Mark. So we know it as the Gospel of Mark. It's written about 30 years or so after the death of Jesus. You got to you got to imagine the scene. To appreciate the letter, you have to imagine what's going on, right? Uh, I, I get the feeling. Um, you, have, you have to think about the feelings that they've been traveling together, journeying for 30 years, sharing these stories over and over again about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus. Peter is now somewhere in his 50s. And look, they know that the time is short for them. And so they both realize at this point, it's important to get Peter's, I mean, this is Peter, right? It's important to get his take on the story of Jesus down on paper and somehow, someway, get it out of Rome. Actually, it's, it's really, all of these things always just blow my mind. It's quite remarkable, right, that all of us have this book, like ready access to this work. It's, if, you, if you wanted to, you could pull this up on your phone in five seconds, you can access in an instant what it took Peter 30 years to bring context to and to, to frame. What Mark might have risked his life smuggling out of Rome, you can pull it up on your phone. And so with that as the background, right, and, and 30 years to think about it in a sense, knowing the importance of the story, the urgency with, with which, you know, it had to get out, Mark, because Peter did, unlike any of the other gospel writers, he doesn't start with the Christmas story. He, he gets right at it. 
Here, here's the opening line. He says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And we, we camped out, if you were here when we spoke about it two weeks ago, on this opening line. We just sat there for a little bit. Because with this opening line, Peter radically differentiates Christianity from every other religion, and I would actually say every other non-religion on earth. Because his assertion is that Christianity is not a set of principles, it's not a philosophy, it's not advice, it's not a practice or a discipline or a plan. Christianity is simply news. Peter described it as good, he believed it to be good, that's for you to decide. But the beginning of the good news, he said, about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And, and, and that's the thing about news. This, this concept follows, this. Peter just really wants you to understand this. When you hear news, you've got to decide three things every time you come across some bit of information. First, is it good news or bad news? I, I, I thought about this a week. You usually don't have to actually think about if it's good news or bad news. Most of the time, like when you hear it, you, you have kind of a visceral reaction. You know if it's good or bad. Second is, is it true or is it, is it fake news, to kind of use a, a word of our day? And then finally, given this news, what am I going to do? Am I going to ignore it or am I going to reorient the way I live around this news? Uh, I want to show you what I mean. I, I'm going to give you, I found these this week, some actual news headlines that I came across. And you're going to tell me these are just purely screenshots, okay? You're going to tell me if you believe that, they, that this is good news or bad news. Do you think you can do this? Can you handle this? It's relatively light work. I don't want you to overthink it. Okay, well, let me think this through. I just want the visceral reaction, right? So here's what, you know, and, and people will react differently to the same, the same news. So, so if you perceive this, this headline as good news, I want you to cheer wildly. And if you perceive this headline as bad news, I want you to boo vociferously. Are you ready? News headline number one. Don't skip dessert. It can actually be good for you. There you go. Headline number two. Seven science-backed reasons beer may be good for you. Number three. Seven reasons why you should not take a summer vacation. And number four. Why the Mets are better than the Yankees. <laughs> I, I had to, it was just, it was, it, was, it was in the list of headlines, what am I going to do? See, this is the funny thing about news, right? It, it doesn't matter if you perceive the news to be good or bad, really. The question is, with the news, right, is it true, and if it's true or not, will I reorient myself based on what I've discovered? Dessert is good for you. That's news, okay? And if it's true, well, great, because now I'll have the mousse and the creme brulee, right? I'm going to change the way I act, the direction in which I was going to go. I mean, think about the, if you believe beer is good for you, right? And, and you reorient your life around that, that new news, it will have implications for your life, your liver, your belly. I mean, if you really embrace that news, right, it might have implications for your work and your family and your relationships. It's news. News is benign. You decide. I, I came up with a little thing for you here. When it comes to news and you, you've got to decide, is it true and what to do? 
That's what you do with news. Is it true? What do I do? The rest of Peter's work all springs from that opening line. Here's the news. What do you do? What was this gospel, this good news? What was the news, okay? Well, the good news, and, and we have to decide if it's true and what to do with it. Peter says, and he was there, right? Like right there, he was a firsthand witness, right? You'll see that in a minute. This is his eyewitness testimony. He says that Jesus went into Galilee, right? And, and he began proclaiming the good news, there it is, of God. And what was the good news? The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Peter, who was there, his firsthand account, right? His firsthand account is actually, it separates Christianity from all other religions, but it actually separates Christianity even from the religious. And it's just faith-shakingly important to understand this. Most of us have heard that Christianity at its core is about Jesus dying for our sins so that we can be forgiven and go to heaven, right, after we die. And before we die, we should shape up, right, in a sense. If you ask most people what the gospel is, that would be their answer. Jesus died, paid for my sins so I could go to heaven. But that is not what Jesus said the good news was. Jesus did not go to town to town declaring the message that he would die in our place to satisfy the justice required of a loving God. That's true, right? But at the time, he was very much alive. That message was, of course, good news. But there was better news. That was like beneath the fold. There was top of the fold good news. And it was this. The good news of Jesus is that the kingdom of God has come. It's near. That was controversial news, exciting news, to some good news, right there in Roman-occupied Galilee, where Herod Antipas, at the time, son of Herod the Great, who was propped up and backed up by the Caesar in Rome at the time, right there in Galilee, where Herod reigned, where Caesar reigned, Jesus shows up and goes, I, I have news. There's a new king in town. There's a new kingdom taking over. That was the news. And then Jesus recognized, again, what do you do with news? Jesus said, repent and believe it. Here's what I want you to do. I have news, and here's, here's the choice, right? What are you going to do? What's your response to the news? You either believe it or not, and then you decide if you will repent, which is a, a religious word for change the way you think, change the direction in which you're going, reorient yourself, your life, around this news. That's what repent means. You used to think and live a certain way when you believed it was Caesar who was king and, and Rome was the kingdom. I'm telling you, believe something different. You used to think one way when you, when you thought that the president was the most important person in the face of the earth and the United States was the kingdom. Jesus is going, I'm telling you, that's not it. That's not the news. Change the way you think. Change the way you live. Friends, don't miss this. It's the crux of Peter's story. This is the crux of Peter's story. If there is a new king and a new kingdom, if it's true, what are you going to do about it? If you believe it, if you believe it, you go, I believe it. What have you done about it? Has it changed you? Or do you live no different? Which leads us to the next verse. It actually becomes Peter's very personal story. Because 
it really changed him. Mark writes that as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, Simon Peter, and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. For they were fishermen, which for us seems to merely indicate their jobs, but for Peter and for Mark and for those who would receive the letter back in Jerusalem, it, it meant so much more than that. Quote, for they were fishermen. It was an identity claim. It, that's not what they did for their livelihood, right? They were part, that, that it was part of the, being part of their family business. There was a secondary implication, though. When Peter says of himself, I was a fisherman. You see, in Galilee, where Peter and his brothers are from, when you grew up in Galilee, you started out in school as a, as a young boy, and, and the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, they were the center of a young Jewish man's life, the, the educational system. You know them as the first five books of the Bible, right? Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers. This teaching, the Jews believed that God had, been, had, had given this teaching to Moses, and it was at the heart of their educational system. It was at the heart of their faith. It was the heart of their legal system. It was at the heart of their culture. And so most Jewish children, they would go to school in their local synagogues and they would learn from their local rabbis at Torah. And by around age 10 or so, right, most children, because of their complete immersion in this, everywhere they went, it was, most children would know the Torah Word for word by heart. Usually by about the time they were 10 years old. And, and at that time, that would, for most kids in, in, in Israel, be the end of their formal education. Most children at that point, after they had gotten the Torah down, they would head out and join their family and ply the family trade. What did Jesus' father do? He's a carpenter, right? What was Jesus known as? Carpenter. It was the family business. But the best of the best of the best, here in Mendham, right, we, we would, if we, if we had this possibility for our children, we'd all have private tutors for them, right, sending them to uh, a place in Long Valley, homework helpers, right? Because the best of the best, they would qualify for an advanced class, for the, the honor class, the, the IB kids, if you will, right? They got to keep going. The rabbi had noticed something in them that was a little bit different, a little bit higher, a little bit better than all the other kids, right? Now, this is hard for us to believe. We, we struggle with, with memorizing the Pledge of Allegiance. But these kids, the, the best of the best, they would be invited to continue their studies where they would begin to memorize the rest of the Jewish texts, all of the law and the prophets, Genesis through Malachi, I mean, that's something somewhere between, depending on how you want to count it, 70 to 80% of, of your Bible. I mean, think about it, right? What, we don't bring Bibles to church because it's too cumbersome and heavy. They memorized it. Now, that second stage of formal education, that would end at around 14 or 15 years old. And most kids, again, like that was impressive. Those were the IB kids. They, they, they did well, right? They got their name on something. But, you know, it was time. School was over, and it was time for them to, to go get a real job, right? And for most of them, it meant that they would go and join their parents that work in the family business. But there was just a handful, I mean, a very few, a very few, 
but the few, the select, I mean, the ultimate somebodies, right? This week I got an email asking me if I wanted to be in the who's who of New Jersey. And I thought to myself, well, it's about time. <laughs> and I looked it up and realized it was a scam. They just wanted my money. So I tried to get my 500 bucks back, but it was way too... <laughs> these were the ultimate, I mean, these were the creme de la creme, right? There was one more path open to the best of the best. It was the final level of education. Again, it's, it's a little bit like our college education system, right? What you would do is, after you would memorize all of the scriptures, you were then free to apply to a rabbi of your choice. And you would apply to become that rabbi's disciple. Like for us, right? For our, our kids, they, they decide what schools they're going to apply to, and then they, you know, they have their safety rabbi, and then, then they're whatever, right? <laughs> and so this would be the best of the best would go out, and they would determine what rabbi they, they wanted to be a disciple for, and they would apply to follow that rabbi. Now, this had, like your kid's school at some level, has huge implications, where you went mattered. The, the rabbi you followed mattered because it wasn't just about learning what the rabbi knew, but the goal when you followed the rabbi was to learn what he knew, but then not to just learn it, you wanted to become like him. You, you, once you understood his, what he taught, your goal was to become like your rabbi, to, to be able to do what he does, to live like he lives. And rabbis, like schools, right, interpret teaching differently. Same scriptures, different interpretations of the scripture. And the way each rabbi interpreted the scripture would be referred to as the rabbi's yoke. And so when you applied to follow a rabbi, right, you would go to that rabbi and you'd say, I, I want to take your yoke upon me. I want to understand and see the scriptures the way you do Reorient the way I live around that. And, and this was a hyper-competitive process. You, you'd go to the rabbi of your choice, and, and you would ask to become one of his disciples. And, and it was no small decision for the rabbi either, right? Think about this. Uh, there was no printing press through which he could get out his teachings. The rabbi would spend his life with these followers, and he had to believe that those learners would have what it takes to extend his yoke. Bad students, no legacy. Your teachings, your ways, they just die with you. And so the rabbis, as I understood it, would take this process very seriously. When you applied, I mean, you were talking about Ivy League level stuff here. Uh, they would really have to believe you have what it takes. Otherwise, they're going to take a hard pass, right? And, and like for most of us and, and, and our kids and their Ivy League dreams, for most kids, the answer was... No, right? Your thought process is excellent. Your academic re record is stellar. But the number of applicants far outweighs the number of, of available slots. So thank you for your application. You didn't make the cut. Time to go back and be a carpenter. But every once in a while, every once in a while, for the best of the best, when they opened that first century email, right? They got what they hoped for. They got an acceptance letter. The rabbi agreed to let them become their disciple, and he agreed to do it with only two words. Do you know what those words were? Follow me. Follow me. That's what it meant to be a disciple. 
These young men, 15, 16, 18, 20 years old, they, they would give their lives to going where their rabbi went. They would leave their families and their friends and their towns and their identities, right? And they would take on the rabbis and they would devote their lives to him. Wherever he went, they went to become like him, to be able to do what he did. Now, most rabbis would begin their teaching around the age of 30, which is coincidentally about how old Jesus is as he's taking a walk along the shores of, of the Sea of Galilee. And Peter says that Jesus, this rabbi this of growing renown, walks up to him and his brother who were casting nets. Why were they casting nets? Because they were fishermen. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, my brother and I didn't make the cut. We weren't following any other rabbis. We, we weren't good enough or smart enough or well-rounded enough. We had been sent home to work. That's who we were. And maybe more importantly, he's trying to tell us that's who we weren't. We were just fishermen. You feel the weight of those words when he writes them, though? The implication? For they were fishermen. Which is what makes Mark's next line so astounding. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I'm going to send you out to fish for people. I mean, the implications are astounding, right? In Galilee... See, in Galilee, you apply to rabbis. You appeal to rabbis. You work to impress rabbis. But here comes a different kind of rabbi with a different kind of yoke who says to Peter and his brother, I'm choosing you. You didn't choose me. It's not supposed to happen like that. Rabbis don't come to disciples. Don't you see disciples chase after rabbis? And rabbis, rabbis don't choose fishermen. Which brings a lot of context to the seeming immediacy of the next line. At once, they left their nets. At once, at once, they willingly abandoned what the world had said they were, who others thought they were. They dropped their identity given to them by their parents, their family, their accomplishments, or their lack thereof. Heck, they put down what they thought of themselves. They reoriented their thought process about even who they were. At once, they left their nets and followed them. What do you do with news? You can ignore it, or you can reorient your lives around it. They followed him. Peter keeps going in his story because it's so unbelievable. He says when he had gone just a little further up the beach, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Again, fishermen, washouts, rejects. Later in the scriptures, um, some of the rulers would go, who are these uneducated men that are, that are following this rabbi? Men like Peter and his brother. And, and you can't help but wonder, as Peter recounts the story, as he, as he says he saw James, son of Zebedee, Maybe if he chokes up a little bit, maybe if he pauses when he says, James, son of Zebedee, because it had been about 20 years. Herod had, had captured James, who, who was doing the exact same thing Peter was. In fact, Herod would also put Peter in jail. Peter would wind up freed. But, but Herod would put, put James in jail, and James wound up dying for what Peter had been doing. 
proclaiming a new king and a new kingdom. And now here's Peter arrested again some 20 years later. And he thinks about his old friend and how they were both just fishermen that day. And so Peter's got to pause and think to himself for a moment, I know how dangerous what I'm doing right now is. But he keeps speaking and Mark keeps writing. Without delay, Jesus called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Peter and Andrew left their work. James and John left their families. Why? Because news forces you to make a decision about it. And the news this rabbi was bringing was that there was a new kingdom. The time has come. The kingdom of God is now. And it comes with a new king. It's not Herod or Caesar. It's me. And when you believe that news and you choose to reorient your life around that news, well, then everything, work, family, Everything becomes secondary in nature to that news. In fact, Jesus has a very difficult teaching that people don't understand. Later on, Jesus goes, if you want to understand Christian family values, try this one on for size. If anybody comes to me and does not hate their father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Nobody crochets that one and slaps it on something. And when he says hate, right, He's speaking objectively, right? Not, not compare, but excuse me, he's not speaking objectively, he's speaking comparatively. In plenty of other places, Jesus teaches that the primary yoke of his is love. We're even to love our enemies. So when Jesus says we should hate here, what he means is that even the people and the things that are the very closest things to us, these things that give us our sense of meaning and identity and security and pride and comfort and home, all of those things comparatively are unimportant in light of this new news. Why? Because it turns out our family and our jobs and, and all of those other things can never give us what we're looking for. Come, he goes, follow me. And James and John, they do. And remember, these four guys, they hadn't measured up. They didn't make the cut. Those guys changed the world. You're sitting in that seat because of those four losers, right? The world would have said, these are unimportant nobodies. In fact, when they were ministering, the world looked at them and said, you're, you're unimportant nobodies. They changed the world. And why? Why did they do it? Why did they follow? They changed the world because they followed. They're here because they followed. And why did they follow? Because they were invited. They were chosen. They did not choose Jesus. Jesus chose them. In fact, Jesus would remind them of that time and time again. I chose you. You didn't choose me. And friends, that is a countercultural story then and today. It is just as anti-religious today as it was then. Why do I say that? Because religion often leads with, with this string of the things that we must do, the plan and the behavior patterns, right? The points, the paradigms, you got to keep it all straight. For Christians, right? We even do it. What must you do to, to follow Jesus? You must believe. That's not wrong. Jesus came to town saying, here's the news, what should I do? Well, repent, reorient yourself around it, and believe. But, listen now, this is so important. 
how much easier is it to believe? How much more sense does it make when you understand what Peter and James and John understood that morning on the beach? And it's this. God believes in you. What if that is the primary story of our faith? Faith in Jesus is important, but what if the primary story that we missed is Jesus' faith in us, in you? What if the bigger story, the outlander story, the crazy story, the kind of story that gets a guy crucified, the story that makes somebody drop their nets and follow is not about the faith of the fisherman in the rabbi, but what if it's a story about the faith of the rabbi in the fisherman? The faith of Jesus in you, no matter who you are, no matter what you do, no matter where you've been, no matter what family you're from, no matter how you've been rejected, no matter how you've been evaluated, what if the primary story is that God believes in you? And I mean, after all, he must, right? He leaves his yoke in our care. You go now and make disciples. You follow. Make others that'll follow. Which isn't easy. It wasn't for Peter in Nero's prison. It wasn't for James who lost his life to Herod. It wasn't for John the Baptist in Herod's jail who was about to lose his head. You remember that's why he asked the, the greatest question of all time. John did not send his disciples back saying, Jesus, would you please save me? He came, he sent his disciples back with one question. Are you the one? Are you the king? Because if you are, it changes everything. If you are, I can reorient the way I feel about my current circumstances, even when they don't make any sense, even when I'm afraid, even when the, the future is uncertain, even when the pain seems overwhelming, even when the cost seems too much, even when the loss seems too great. Come. Follow me. I'm the king you've been looking for all of this time. I have authority over everything, and yet, I choose you. I'm going to close with this story I came across this week. This is where the thread comes in. I would love for you to just kind of take it out, and as I tell you the story, just kind of feel it with your fingers. I hadn't heard of it before. Jesus taught very hard truths in parable, and this is a parable echoing so profoundly just this truth. Journalist, author, Christian apologist G.K. Chesterton said of this story, I want to validate it a little for you. He says, I for one, uh, th think about how the reor reorientation for him about this. I for one can really testify to a book that has made a difference to my whole existence, which has helped me see things in a certain way from the start, a vision of things which even so real as a revolution as a change of religious allegiance has substantially only crowned and confirmed. Of all the stories I've read, including even all the novels of the same novelist, it remains the most real, the most realistic, in the exact sense of the phrase, the most like life. He said it's called The Princess and the Goblin. It's by George MacDonald. Has anybody ever? Maggie, of course, Maggie's read every book. I was talking to Maggie in the back. She's like, oh, I love that book. Anybody else know this book? It's about 150 years old. 
published in 1872. In it, Irene is the protagonist. She's an eight-year-old little girl, and she, she found an attic room in her house, and every so often her great-grandmother appears to her up in the attic, and she finds great comfort from her grandmother. When she goes to look for her, she's often not there, though. So one day her grandmother gives her a ring with a thread tied to it, leading to a, a, a little ball of thread, and she explains that she'll keep the ball of thread. But I can't see it, says Irene. No, her grandmother says, the thread is too fine for you to see it. You can only feel it. Then you must lay, I love this, then you must lay your finger, the same that you wore the ring, upon the thread and follow the thread wherever it leads you. Oh, how delightful it'll lead me to you, grandmother, I know. Yes, but remember, it may seem to you a very roundabout way indeed, and you must not doubt the thread. Of one thing you may be sure, that while you hold it, I hold it too. And, and, and so the story goes on. A few days later, Irene is, is in her bed, and, and goblins begin to kind of manifest in her house, and she hears them out in the hallway, becomes very upset, very frightened, and she remembers what her grandmother said. So she puts the ring under her pillow, and she begins to feel for the thread, which she knows will take her to the safety of her grandmother. But to her dismay, instead of leading to the attic, it, it takes her outside, and she realized that it's taking her right towards the cave of the goblins. At this point, she, she becomes more frightened, quite understandably. But what happens next is so crucial. She, not only does she continue to follow this thread with her finger, but she begins to do something very similar within her heart and mind. Check this out. I, I, had, I had them put it up for you so you could see it. It's so important. Before she had gone many paces, she was in total darkness. Then she began to be frightened indeed. Every moment she kept feeling the thread backwards and forwards, even as she went further and further into the darkness of the great hollow mountain. She kept thinking more and more about her grandmother and all that she had said to her and how kind she had been and how beautiful she was and all about her lovely room and the fire of roses and the great lamp that sent its light through the stone walls. And she became more and more sure that the thread could have not gotten there by itself and that her grandmother must have sent it. But it tried her dreadfully when the path went down very steep and especially when she came to places where she had to go down rough stairs and, and even sometimes a ladder. Through one narrow passage after another over lumps of rock and sand and clay, the thread guided her. One commentator asked the question, why does Irene begin to think about her grandmother at this point? about what, what she had said and how kind she had been and about her beauty and her room and the lamp. Because as she follows the thread, she traces it with her finger, running them back and forth along this thin strand. She's being led into the darkness along this strange and unlikely road. She has to, she has to follow it. But if she's to continue along this way, right, she's going to need to continually remember eight friends. Listen to this. She's going to have to continually remember a different story. A different thread, which is the source and the anchor of the first, as, as she recollects her grandmother and all that she knows of her. It's as if she runs her hand along the memory and feels it. And in feeling and knowing and recalling the character of her grandmother, she can trust that whatever has come from her can indeed be trusted. The psalmist discovered a similar truth. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. 
And so now she gets led by this thread up to the cave full of the goblins, and, and, and she discovers a great heap of stones at the dead end. Quote, the thought struck her, well, at least she could follow the thread backwards and thus get out. But the instant she tried to follow it backwards, it vanished from her touch. The grandmother's thread only worked forward, but forward it led into a heap of stones. Irene burst into a wailing cry, but after crying, she realized that the only way to follow the thread was to tear down the wall of stones, and she began tearing it down, stone by stone. Though her fingers are soon, soon bleeding, she pulls and pulls, and suddenly she hears a voice. It's her friend, Curdie, who's been trapped in the goblin's cave. Curdie is astounded and asks, why, however, did you come here? Irene replies that her grandmother sent her, and quote, and I think I found out why. After Irene had followed the thread and removed enough rocks to create an opening, Curdie starts to climb up out of the cave. But Irene keeps going deeper into the cave, and Curdie objects. Where are you going? That's not the way out. That's where I couldn't get out. Listen to Irene's conclusion, friends. I know that, says Irene, but this is the way my thread goes, and I must follow it. Jesus walks up to Peter, James, John, and Andrew, and he presents them with good news. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near because the king is here. That was the news. What do you do with the news? You verify it. You'll see next week Jesus will do this over and over and over again, but then you have to make a choice. You can ignore the news or you can reorient your life around it. And what you do one way or the other will have implication. What does it look like to reorient yourself to this news? Two simple words. Follow me. That day on the shores of the Sea of the Galilee, Peter, James, John, Andrew, they leave their jobs, they leave their families, they leave their identities, who the world said they were. Heck, they leave who they thought they were, and they choose to follow the king. Now, I'm sure if you ask them at that moment, they thought their lives following this new king was going to turn out quite differently. You'll see that over the next few weeks. They didn't really know what they were getting themselves into. They spent half their time arguing over who's going to be the greatest in this new kingdom. They had no idea what being the greatest in the kingdom of God would look like. It turned out it was the opportunity of a lifetime, but it was not necessarily the lifetime that they had signed up for. Following the king is like that sometimes, you know. Some of you know that. Following this king is often like it. Tim Keller summed it up this way. Jesus says, follow me, I'm going to take you on a journey, and I don't want you to turn to the left or to the right. I want you to put me first. I want you to keep trusting me. I want you to stick with me, not turn back, not give up. Turn to me in all of the disappointments and the injustices that are going to happen to you. I'm going to take you to places that will make you say, why in the world are you taking me here? And even then, I want you to trust me. The path Jesus takes you on may look like it's taking you to one dead end after another. Nevertheless, the thread doesn't work in reverse. If you just obey Jesus and follow it forward, it will do its work. Is it difficult? Of course it's difficult. But as you follow, remember this, Jesus is not asking anything of you that he has not already done. He is not asking you to go any place that he has not already led. Jesus himself does absolutely everything that he's calling you to do. When he, when he called James and John to leave their father in the boat, he had already left his father's throne. And later, he's going to be ripped from his father's presence on the cross. It's going to look as if your thread sometimes is taking you to dead-end places. 
where you're going to get bloodied, where the only way to follow the thread looks like it might crush you, but don't go backwards. Don't turn to the left. Don't turn to the right. Jesus' kingship will not crush you. Jesus was crushed for you. Believe in him? Yes, of course. But remember, he believed in you first. Choose him, of course, but remember, he chose you first. And remember this, he followed his thread to the cross so that you could follow yours to him and home. Let's close in song.